Kim Schmidt, Managing Editor of Farm Equipment. Welcome to this episode, just the second one ever, of Farm Equipment's brand new podcast series. We launched this podcast channel to help you extend your day and access important and actionable content while in your truck or in whatever margins of your day you can find. This is a brand new, narrowly focused channel for you, 100% dedicated to used equipment remarketing roadmaps. I'd encourage you to subscribe to this new podcast available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing alerts you when each upcoming episode is released and will put a world of content onto the phone in your pocket whenever and wherever you want to listen to it. So this new podcast is just part of the announcement we teased you with in our debut show on July 2nd. And today's episode is a trailblazing new format here at our company, which has produced 103 podcasts to date across our audiences. Knowing how much you like the dealer expert perspective, we're handing over the wheel of our podcast to one of your peers, Casey Seymour, the remarketing manager at 21st Century Equipment, a 20-store John Deere dealership based in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. Casey also operates Moving Iron LLC, which includes meetings, recordings, and other opportunities for answers and solutions for remarketing managers. And I'm personally pleased to introduce you to him as he's been so helpful to us in our coverage of the used equipment market in these challenging last couple of years. Casey will be your official host of this new twice a month podcast that will release every other Thursday. In each episode, Casey takes you in the room with some of the brightest minds in used equipment remarketing as they ask questions of one another about what is and is not working. And at the end of this podcast, we'll also share some additional resources that will help you make the best decisions when it comes to used equipment inventory and how to keep it moving. Before we turn Casey loose, a quick word from Iron Solutions, who is making this podcast a reality. Iron Solutions provides dealers with an array of life cycle management services that drive sales and profits. Their Iron Search and Iron Guides are all about managing your dealership more efficiently and profitably, while Iron Search allows you to directly showcase your equipment online to a wider universe of buyers. Visit www.ironsolutions.com today. For the first episode in this new series, you'll hear Casey's conversation with John Hawkins, remarketing manager of Martin Sullivan, a 13-store dealership in Galesburg, Illinois. Take it away, Casey. I'm Casey Seymour, and I'm joined with John Hawkins from Martin Sullivan uh, in uh, Illinois. Uh, John, how you doing? I'm good. How are you doing, Casey? Not too bad, man. Not too bad. So I've known John for a long time, and when I look at used equipment managers, remarketing managers, I think John's probably one of the smartest guys out there with, he, with the processes that he does and, and just his overall view of, of used equipment. So it's a great honor to have you on my podcast, John. Hey, well, I appreciate it. Thank you for the kind words. No problem. So why don't you tell me a little bit about Martin Sullivan and, and the area you cover in, the, in your crop mix? Sure. Uh, Martin Sullivan is a 13-store dealership covering western and central Illinois. Crop mix is uh, primarily corn and soybeans. We do have a little bit of livestock on the western side of the state, which hugs up against the Mississippi River, but uh, primarily corn and soybeans. Heart of Illinois, uh, heart of Illinois farming. So, give me a little bit of background on on who on uh, on John Hawkins and, and kind of what, how long you've been in the industry and and um, kind of how your roles changed over the over the course of your career so far. You know, I started uh, I started in the industry January first, two thousand one. I uh, moved into a position uh, basically as a CSR, learning the business. Uh, just had some really good timing over times. Uh, 
I went from a CSR through through parts, through service, through sales. Uh, worked myself to a marketing manager job, which um, marketing manager is kind of was, uh, is where I was looking to be at at that time. Um, like I say, timing always is is a benefit for certain for certain things. And uh, right when I started the marketing manager, I, I just left sales and uh, I got the charge to uh, grow our internet sales, remarket our used equipment, grow our internet sales. This is 2005. We had a very small website, no no uh, real opportunity to, to grow used sales through it. Um, and uh, we spent time working with Machine Finder Pro or Machine Finder at that time, Tractor House, places like that, uh, Fastline, and and really just and really just grew our used sales through the internet. It, you know, during those times, you couldn't not go wrong when uh, when you're talking internet marketing, internet sales. So. Uh, it worked well. I went from there to uh, general sales manager for client equipment at the time. That's who I started with was client equipment. Um, uh, general sales manager for client equipment. Uh, things were really well during the 2010, 2011. As you know, Casey, you couldn't go wrong during those times. It was it was just real good times to be in being equipment business. Um, fun times, very much so. Yeah. Fun times, you know. But that's where I got to meet you too. When I started saying. Uh, we're talking over the phone. I started saying, you know, we're going to have a problem with used equipment someday. You know, we're selling all this new. We're doing great. We're, we're selling new equipment to our used buyers. We're going to have a used equipment problem. Now, I went to the owner of, of our business then in 2011 and said, you know, I think you need a used equipment manager, someone who has some foresight to where the market could be going because used equipments that's where all your cash is tied up in. He looked at me and said, that's a good idea. I've never heard of this, such a thing. Draw me up a job description. I drew him up a job description. Uh, a month later, I, I moved out of the general sales manager role back into the used equipment manager. Um, and really just trying to guard and protect and and um, forecast you know, the owner's assets, used assets, and how we could best position ourselves on the market to... Uh, to grow gets me back into where I was at before when I was a marketing manager of of marketing the business online sales used equipment online and uh, you know 2013 I believe it was we were acquired client equipment was acquired by Martin Sullivan I uh, kept my same position just uh, grew a few more stores and uh, that's where I sit today so my titles changed as a remarketing manager. Uh, same same thing as a used equipment manager, uh, but the, you know the focus is to ensure that uh, that we're getting the best opportunity and and, and to grow used sales and uh, protect against uh, against over risk of, of used inventory. Yeah, the remarketing manager is a fun job, man, because you are uh, you're absolutely trying to manage your risk but maximize your your margin potentials all the way across the board, and and it is a very delicate situation because if you're too much on one side, you take away from one or the other. So yeah, it's a. I love the. I love doing this. It's a great position. It's never boring. No, I I agree. I it's uh, it's one of those positions that um, you know it's once you get it figured out, it it's a it's a really gratifying position because you're setting a lot of long term plans. Uh, you're forecasting ahead of the market when it works. It it it's it's fun to watch. I agree with you completely. Yeah, it's a good time. 
So let's get into your local market and kind of take a look at what you have going on there. Um, yeah. Right now, we just talked about you had some rain situations, uh, and you've got some situations where you're going to have possibly some replant and some guys that are kind of falling behind and those kind of things. What are some of your short-term uh, positive gains you think you'll have, and what are your some some of your long-term or short-term um, negative gains you might see? Yeah, yeah, I, I would say uh, from a short-term positive gain, uh, I would say it's, it's the moisture. I mean, guys feel positive about where we sit at. You know, there's uh, they had a, we had a record crop, corn crop and bean crop last year, and guys look at this year being a lot like last year, how the weather's setting up. Now, I know two years are ever the same, but they feel very confident and comfortable about where we're at with a uh, with a crop right now, and where it's going. So short term gains, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of guys that haven't uh, haven't purchased a lot of the last couple years, and uh, good crop last year. They feel like they're going to have a good crop this year, and uh, we're going to see a lot of uh, a lot of uh, pent up buying demand. Uh, hopefully, right around used equipment. You know, our, our large guys that had bought new equipment, we kind of held them back for a year last year or two because we had so much inventory overflow. No, I think they're ready to buy some new. I think our used guys that we were, that were behind them are ready to buy used. So that, that to us, all in all, I mean, all, our, all across the board with used ag equipment, we feel real good about that this year. What are some short-term weaknesses we see? I can tell you, well, it's just it's just a change and shift in the market. You and I have talked about this before. You know, the, the market uh, short term is, is still uh, trying to work through this inventory glut. And it's changed our customers' buying habits from the standpoint that, uh, you know, you, you've heard it from me hundreds of times, Casey. It's, it's uh, uh, transparency in the market really changed our, our, our customers' buying habits. And I think that has a lot to do with supply and demand. Um, I think once the, uh, the supply and demand get themselves in, in line, the supply gets itself in line um, and demand uh, holds, holds strong, I think those buying habits will get back more to a traditional phase. But I still think we're going to have a little bit to work through um, on the negative side from getting through this uh, this inventory glut, this last little bit of inventory glut that we've seen go to auction. We've seen uh, uh, just the, the customer overall's buying habits change. Okay. What, what is your traditional equipment mix? Are you, are you primarily a large ag, talking big four drives, big row crops, big planters, you know, combines, that kind of stuff? Or do you, do you have a lot of, uh, are you looking at, you know, in the, smaller the small ag um cuts those kind of things you know we're we're traditionally a large egg uh dealership uh oil drives big eight r's combines big planters as we know uh we have a real emphasis to grow our small egg share in the business and we're working hard at that one of the things we did is we added a turf manager it's helped out tremendously a guy just to, to focus on turf it, there's so much to do with, with small ag compact tractors and this just having the right amount of inventory on the ground. It's, it's a, more of an auto philosophy, auto dealership philosophy. you got to have it on the ground so people can see it. And uh, we, we've, uh, we've seen growth there too. But uh, primarily our meat and potatoes are combines, large 8R tractors, and, uh, and larger planters and, and row crop sprayers. And that's, and that's pretty similar to what we have. We are, our, our dealership's a little more diverse, probably than than a, a lot of a lot of dealerships are. We have a very 
of course, large ag is king. You know, we're always going to try to push that, focus that as much as we can. But we have a large presence in the small ag as well because of the number of cattle guys we have and the number of, uh, you know, hay production that we have out there, as well as we have about a million people in our AOR. So we have a lot of hobby farmers and those kind of things that, that you know, you got five acres, you need a tractor. You know, so we got a lot of a lot of guys like that, and, and of course, then we have a large uh, amount of uh, commercial mowing that we take care of too. So, we we kind of really diversified our business just because of where we live at and in our on our marketplace. Not so much because we went out and tried to hammer that, but we also have gotten pretty aggressive because of of deer. They've really stressed that that cut and under ninety horsepower range, and that's we've really gone after that too. So, there are some definite. Uh, short-term gains that we can make, I think, across the board when it comes to all that. Yeah. Okay, so majority of your customers five years ago probably never talked to you about a lease, and it wasn't even something they were even thinking about. I know you have some uh, ag service providers that you have a, a pretty good relationship when it comes to leasing with, but just your uh, your meat and potato farmer out there working working the family farm, a lease probably wasn't a big, a big thing on their radar or even something they even want to talk about because they wanted to keep the equity they had in their equipment. With equity uh, kind of slipping away in equipment right now, and there's not much equity to be had, it seems like, especially when you start looking at like 2012s and 13s and and 14 model large ag equipment. You have more guys talking to you about leases than you had in the past. Uh, yeah, we do. We do. We still don't have many talking about us with leasing. It, it just seems like um, we still struggle to get to get a lot of our customers through Central Illinois at least to uh, to even finance equipment. We have a lot of strong farmers that uh, that pay cash for a lot of their a lot of their machinery. But we've watched leases creep in a little bit more here in the last year, and some of it is you know is predicated by us going out there and selling the, the lease to the customer. But uh, I would still say um, normally people don't come in and ask us about leasing here in our area of the of the, uh, of the Midwest. Okay. Do you see a lot of local auctions right now? And I'm not talking like like the bigger auction companies having having a larger sale in your area. Like for example, Chicago's not all that far from where you're at. Ritchie Brothers has got a big big lot up there, and of course Martin Sullivan's got a pretty big presence in your area as well. But when you think about the local farm auction the guy the retirement sale or the guy trying to generate a little cash or something like that are those playing a bigger part in in what your customers buying habits are as far as how they're coming back and, and interacting with you or do you see that being a kind of flash in the pan thing no I, you know um real quick i want to i want to correct you it's sullivan auctioneers it, it, it can get I'm sorry that. i'm at it can get it can get confusing but, um, slip. sorry buddy that's all right. No problem. Um, you know, we do. Uh, we have seen uh, a good share of of local auctions. I, I do have a contact with uh, with a rep from Sullivan Auctioneers, and I mean, I think they went thirty five days straight, not including Sundays, where they had an auction this winter, which for them was unheard of, and that was a that was a uh, retirement farm based type auctions that they had primarily. And they do cover a few different states, but uh, you know, 35 days straight of an auction of auctions, and it was farm machinery auctions. That's that's pretty dramatic to the uh, to everybody's to everybody's environment. Um, yours, yours, and mine included, because what you're seeing is, think about it this way: every time a farmer has an auction, and he's either retiring or, or getting cash 
that's kind of a double whammy on us dealers because number one, there's somebody going out of business that's not going to be a buyer. And number two, there's somebody buying that equipment that's not going to be a buyer in our market too. So it, it's, it's been a little tough on the market. Once again, I think it's, it's short-lived. I think tr- traditionally our, our uh, farmers want to buy and sell from, you know, to us and with us as dealers. But when, when the time comes, and whether it's financial financially driven or uh, just time to retire, uh, we're going to see auctions. But I think we're, we've seen the most of it right now. And I think it will start to uh, start to slow down moving ahead. But we've seen a lot around here as well. Yeah, we've, we've seen a fair amount of, of auction activity around us too. We've had a lot of dads getting out and then brothers and sisters are kind of squabbling over who gets what. So they auction everything off. Take whatever yes. cash back, split it however many ways, and then they go out and, and kind of break off the farm into their into the little quadrant. So, thing and one thing that's a little unique about Illinois, um, you know, if if you get into the heart of Illinois, uh, about every sixty miles out from where we're at, um, if you draw a if you draw a hundred eighty mile radius around uh, around central Illinois, about every sixty miles in each direction. There's a uh, there's either a, there's either a wholesale consignment auction or an auction house mm-hmm. that's set up. We have a lot of competition against uh, with with auction companies in uh, in Illinois and in Indiana and uh, in Missouri, Iowa. So that's something we, we we try to work with and you know really work on uh, articulating our value statement um, versus uh, versus auction houses and. Uh, in auction, uh, in auction buying, because uh, that's become a very big competitor for us here recently. Now, once again, um, I think this is a short-term problem. It's a supply and demand problem. Uh, once, uh, once supply gets gets uh, gets right-sided, um, and and demand stays the same, I think we'll see the dealers uh, pull true in this whole thing, in this whole uh, process. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Do you see that that auction? Is playing a big effect on your retail pricing strategy, or is it something you're not? Ma- I mean, is it something that you're not really paying over amount, overly amount of attention to, and you're just trying to get the the best bang for your buck, or kind of what's your strategy there? Well, I think that uh, yeah, I think uh, I think auction should play into everybody's uh, retail pricing strategy because um, in many cases that's market. You know, that's a market price. Um, you know, I always say, what's market price? You know, as us as dealers, you know, it's it's however much more you think you can uh, you can draw than than the uh, than an auction. And, and the good thing for us is, once again, there's transparency. You know, the customer can see what auction values are, but we can as well. And uh, we should be better educated buyers because our customers are better educated buyers as well. So, um, you know, from that stance, uh, yeah, well, auction does play a big a stance into how we price and how we position our used equipment. The good thing is, though, we should have a great value proposition because we have all this information and all this data our salesmen can build off of when they go out and visit the customer. Yeah, that's uh, we, we have a lot of tools that, that the auction company didn't have. You know, we can... It comes to working with our partners at at John Deere Financial or wherever you might have other financial relationships with, working with those folks and, and getting some good interest rates or buying and, and applying, you know, Power Guard and, and various other extended warranty programs, 
and just you know just your, your technicians that you have out in your shops and your parts people that you have i mean as far as i'm concerned i always say that you know the sales guy will sell the first one and your shop and parts department will sell the next 10 you know that's and, right and so if you have that good group of guys out there that know what they're doing and, and can knock stuff out and go that extra mile for the customers and I don't think I've ever met a technician that was not willing to to help somebody out when they're when they're in a in a tight spot. So we have all that to offer, and I think there's a there's a lot of good things there that we can go above and beyond, like you said, auction up. But the but the dichotomy that is, how much is someone willing to pay above what they can go get the same thing at the auction value with? And and quite frankly, there's there's not a, a lack of supply when it comes to stuff at the auction right now. There there are a lot of a lot of stuff out there. You and I talked about one the other day that was some late model nine R's, I think, and there were there were fifteen or sixteen of them on the same thing. So, and that might be a a one off situation where you saw that, but that's not that uncommon to find some late model low hour stuff on some of these auctions, especially coming out of Canada. It seems like there's a there's a fair amount of stuff being auctioned up there that is coming out there with exchange rates and those kind of things. There's some there's some bargains to be had up there, so kind of looking across that landscape, I think we need to be conscious of auctions, but also, like I said, it's your value statement, man. You know, you, you what, what are you going to offer that's that's going to bring that extra dollar? And and uh, we, we have a pretty good value statement to offer our customers. So now, look overall here from a macro level across the, across all of North America, United States, which however you want to break it down. And what do you see as the sticking points for used equipment? What do you see for the some good places to go out and, and you're going to be able to get some, get some sales out of stuff. Where, where do you see for the coming year? What do you see for used equipment? Yeah. So from a macro standpoint, and this is something that you and I have talked about and how our jobs have evolved over, over the, uh, over the years. And, you know, there we're, I'm running macro reports monthly and looking at inventory level from a macro level and trying to parallel that to our own inventory you look at where we're at with, with combines and combines have really they've continued to come down over time. Um, a lot of that has to do with uh, all of us, you know, having a real effort not to sell as many combines as we had in the past over the last two years. And uh, you know, there's some parallels, not as much, but there are some parallels with 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 combines and with uh, track or with sprayers and, and planters. You look at the sprayer and planter market right now. Um, for the most part, it's in check. It's really good. There's still some good demand out there for you for the right used planters, but uh, and, and sprayers, and they're they're hard to find as well. I think we're getting close to that with combines. I think we still have a lot of stuff, some problems, some problem childs there. But all in all, um, you know, I think combines are in a real good spot. Like I said, planters and and and, and tractors from a macro level are really uh, are really well. Probably uh, probably the big one we still have to work through is tractors. Still trying to understand where the tractor market's at. And, you know, we there's some dynamics out there that that you and I talked about, Casey. That uh, that really uh, make the tractor market hard to understand where we're at, and where it's going, and you know, in terms with with uh, with lease inventory that's that's sitting out there on the ground. I mean, I can look at it from a macro level and look and say, okay, how many how many pieces of machinery are on the ground that uh, that dealers own. And how does that compare to last year at this time, or two years ago at this time? But there's this dynamic of this uh, when we don't we talk transparency. This inventory that we're, that's not very transparent right now. That we don't have a lot of we don't have a lot of good feel for that. Which 
makes me a little uneasy on that market. But, uh, um, you know, all in all, I really think that uh, 2017 is, 2016 was the year where we, uh, we all sat back and we're sick to our stomach, but I think we're starting to be able to breathe a little bit in 17 and seeing, uh, seeing that uh, inventories are getting themselves right. And I think inventory levels are probably, like you said, the transparency, the internet has made everything very transparent and, and you can see a lot of stuff out there. But like you said, there are some things out there that we don't see and, and the, the buying public doesn't see. So we have, uh, it does make our job a little tougher sometimes than, than what it has. But like you said, I think they are working through some of that stuff. I still feel like we've got probably another 18 months of glut when you start looking at the 12s, the 13s, and the 14 model build years. I mean, those, those years were so just massive amount of equipment was built in those three years. Uh, and I still feel like there's a there's a lot of that out there. And back to your point, like you said earlier, there is some pent-up buying demand that you have out there. The negative part of that is the trade differences that you're going to be looking at from a you know, it's like about an S670 or S680 or something like that from a, a 12 or a 13 model to a, if you wanted to work through that, that one-year-old late model 16 or 17 that you're bringing in, that's going to be a pretty big number uh, to get through. And, and a lot of guys, how that, how that's going to affect their, their cash flow situation and how it's going to affect their, their farming operation. It's still going to be a struggle to get that put together. But I always talk to our sales guys about, okay, so their current payment is whatever it is, 40,000 bucks, whatever it is. And they're going to spend that, send that combine to the shop because you're at a point now where the hours are going to start dictating some some heavy recon um and they got to spend 20 grand in the shop or whatever the number is how's that going to affect their their cash flow situation if you can take their forty thousand dollar payment and make it a make it a fifty thousand dollar payment or even in some cases keep it the same you know um which we've been able to do that a few times and they can avoid that recon bill that's something that I that I really stress a lot when I'm talking to our sales guys. You see something similar, a similar situation like that? Yeah, yes, sir. I definitely do. Um, that's you know, and once again, we're talking about how to how to make sure our, our guys get back to to being salesmen. Uh, and you know, in the past, we had to be uh, we had to be strictly order takers, and uh, you know, and now we're sitting here going. Now we're sitting here going to uh, to our guys, you know, go out and sell, sell payments, sell uh, sell value above auction, and and that's been a, that's been a real transitionist for us all. Let's sit there and get back and put our selling shoes on. You know, when we had this inventory glut, we had good prices, we had good yields, um, just just so much good there. It was almost bad because it got us into a lot of bad habits. You know, you've heard me say this as well. You know, during the best of times, when we developed our worst habits, and uh, you know, we used to sit back and uh, in those days and say, "Okay, where are bad habits we're, we're getting?" We're trying to work through those habits. Um, well, probably the biggest one we didn't see was our, our lack of truly trying to sell value and going out there and in mining business and, and trying to grow business instead of waiting for it to come to us. Um, so, you know, that's one thing that, uh, that, you know, you're, you hit the nail right on the head there saying, you know, you, that's just part of selling that we're, we're getting back into, uh, getting back into, and you, you know, you and I are, are, are trying to push that and, and, and look at selling in a different way, the way maybe we did, you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago. Um, it, uh, it'll be interesting to see how we uh, how we all adjust to that, and uh, and uh, you know the ones that are able to adjust to it and sell the value and and 
and get out there in front of customers, they're going to be they're going to be very successful. Yeah, I think you're right. The guys out there working with customers now and and helping guys manage their risk, increase their cash flow, all those kind of things. Now, all those dividends of the no, not right now. No, not right now. Those are going to pay off. And I think staying in front of those customers is far and away the most important thing you can do. Don't ever give up on them. And, you know, these guys are, are, are struggling right now to kind of make ends meet. So, um, but same hand, there are some opportunities out there and you got to find those mm-hmm. opportunities and they're not nearly as easy to find as they were a couple years ago, but uh, almost three years ago now, but it's coming together. We'll get back to Casey and John in a moment, but first a quick word from the company who made this new podcast possible, Iron Solutions. Iron Solutions has deep roots in the ag industry with products for producers, dealers, manufacturers, ag retailers, and service providers. Visit www.ironsolutions.com today to see solutions that streamline your operations, improve productivity, reduce costs, and speed your growth. So now we're moving into EOP. We got a, we got two EOPs coming up that I think are going to affect us both pretty good is, and I think EOP for planters, EOP for um, sprayers that comes up here. It opens up here the first part of next month, if I remember right. And um, of course, combine sales are going to start being a, a hot topic, especially on Neck the Woods here where we've got guys out cutting wheat uh, or getting ready to start cutting wheat here for too long if they can ever get it to dry up. And and uh, so we're, we're about a month away or so um, from really getting into that on, southern, on our very southern tip of our of our territory um and then we're pretty much running combines all the way through uh through october so um you guys are a little different you start cutting combines there at the end of september part uh start cutting corn and beans in that time frame so as you look at your planter sales coming in into uh the coming year it's hard it's hard to make it make a decision about what's going to work for you and what's not going to work for you because unfortunately in this business it seems like whatever decision you make today you have no idea if it's right for a year and then you have to kind of sit back and, and, and watch and hope that you played your cards right to start with. So what do you think planners are going to end up for you? Yeah, you know, we're, we're projecting a, a pretty aggressive growth for planners and uh, for, this, for the model year 18 EOP. Um, how, we, how we look at EOPs is we look at what we have. Uh, we look at a three- to five-year sales history and, uh, and try to match uh, – and try to match um, sales with what our used demand is, and what comes into that also is what how many planters we're carrying. We're really not plant carrying any planters right now, so we're looking at a pretty aggressive uh, uh, buy of uh, of used planters this year. Well, at least we hope so. Um, uh, you know, there's some different things that come into the market that are are uh, are. A little concerning with planters, you know, as you said, you just don't know where you sit. Um, you know, the hard thing with planters is that they're, they're becoming such a specialty item. And, uh, you know, I like to say that, you know, John Deere and a dealer are almost like the middleman right now. Uh, you know, we have the bar and we're, we're uh, you know, the customer has different influencers on the planner that he wants. And we don't have a lot of influence in that. We need to work hard and get out there and and uh, and be an influencer in that market. You know, we got people that want to buy planters, but there's so much extra add-ons, uh, different technologies, different components that we might have, we might not have. 
that will affect the plenary OP um, and affect, affect sales here. So we're working hard to be in, trying to be an influencer in this market and not just being an order taker. We're not being the middleman and just facilitating uh, facilitating the the, uh, the sale with a bar. Yeah, that we're the same. We're the same way. You know, we were. I was talking with my sales manager yesterday about um, an upcoming uh, sales meeting we had, and we've been kind of planning this out for a while. But when we we look at our planner marketplace, we haven't sold that many new planners over the last couple of years. Um, our planner sales were off dramatically from what from what they were. Um, two years ago, even three years ago. And that really, I think we have some pretty good opportunities to really go out and, and look at and go out and get some planner business sold, new planner business sold. Um, our fortunate thing that we're going to have is like, we're not, we're not going to be trading a lot of one-year-old planners. The planners we're trading in are going to be probably three to seven-year-old planners. And so when we roll past that first one coming in um, and really bringing that, that whole thing together, our, our first generation trade-ins off our new one sells, we're going to have some pretty decently priced stuff. And we're going to be able to go out and, and I think have some pretty good opportunities to go sell these used planners to some guys that have the older 1770s and, and 17, you know, 65s and, and 1760s and 1720s even a little bit that we have in our area. So um, we have a lot more guys that are switching to 15-inch stuff. Um, and, and doing you know twin row planners and those kind of things, so that, there might be some some s struggles there. But I really th I'm kind of positive about our planners. I think that we have some opportunities there that we can we can grow that business uh, and not have uh, a lot of risk on the backside with the use stuff we're bringing in. I, I believe we're in the same boat there, and that and that was all set up, Casey. I think by you know dealers as a whole over the last two to three years. Uh, trying to manage your new sales and say, okay, I'm used to selling 50 planners a year, you know, from 2011 to 2014. And now in 2014 and 15, I realize that when I go to, when I go into EOP, I, I'm carrying 40 to 50 planners over. And, uh, and we're looking at, you know, you're looking at wholesale and planners and wholesale planners is, uh, is, uh, insane. But it happened, and yeah. uh, and um, you know, so everybody cut back on their uh, their uh, their new sales for for two years. It hurt. I mean, it hurt market share. It hurt. Uh, it hurt volume. But then again, I mean, we're all so much better spot to go back and say, okay, Mister Customer, Mrs. Customer, here's a solution we can give to you, and we're going to be able to meet your needs this way, yeah. and. And that goes all throughout the whole chain, not just with the new buyer, but with the used buyers falling behind that. And I, I, I completely agree with you. I think, uh, I think that planners are, are set up to be at a really positive year. I think Deer believes that as well. Um, you know, but a lot of it had to do with, uh, with getting our inventories right-sided and not selling so much new um, for the last couple of years. Hopefully, we don't get back to the point again to where we're, we're overselling our markets uh, nationwide, and then we're back to where we were at. I think we've all learned from that. Yeah, I think that's why you know I'm. We've talked about this before, and you know, like I said, I'm a, I'm a washout cycle guy. I kind of know what that washout cycle is. Compare that to the number of you, new you sell, and you kind of somewhat have a crystal ball of what you need to at least 
get through, not necessarily what you're going to sell, what you have to at least push through. And then, like you said, compare that back to some historical data and see if you can work through what you got. I think the new planner does have some options on it that, and some new technologies on it that makes our planner pretty, pretty darn good planner, uh, comparative to what you see out in the marketplace. And especially with the, uh, you know, the exact emerge stuff, like we were talking about in type playing windows and, and the, the speed that guys can plant now, um, has dramatically increased. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of good advantages there. And like you said, I think we're, we're prime for some, some good, some good planner sales, but we'll, we'll see what the, uh, what the market bears there. Um, on sprayer market, when I look at the sprayer market for us, it seems like we have a lot of demand for, uh, the R series sprayers that are out there. That's that late model, low hour stuff. Um, it seems like the other stuff that we have, the, the 40 series, the 30 series stuff, there is some demand for that, but it's a lot of the demand we see. Again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier where our new sales were off so much that we are, um, guys are, are, are running, their, running their equipment longer than they have in the past. Now they're looking at some reconditioning issues that they might have to, to spend some money on. And, you know, tires is, is something that they're, that they're always talking about on sprayers. Um, I feel pretty positive about what's going to happen with sprayers, and I think that we're, we're a CAD dealer, so the bulk of our sales go to uh, the commercial end, the ag, the ag service provider, ag service provider in. But I still feel like there's going to be some some strong on farm sprayer sales that that we can we can capitalize on. We see, John. Yeah, I I completely agree. You know, sprayers are a little bit unique for us here in uh, in the Midwest, where we get a lot of corn. You know, I'm looking at, I think we're going to grow very, you know, quite a bit in this, in 1718. Though I think our growth is going to be in the Hagee side for us. Um, I I think, you know, just listen to, we're we're a cat dealer also, and just listen to our earlier people. There seems to be a lot of of interest in in Hagee sprayers. I think there were groups that had Hagees, but not as many as wanted them because they didn't feel they had the support. Now that they have uh, John Deere dealer dealerships behind them, I think you're going to see that growth with with Hagees. Now, how that how that plays out in our used market with um, with our 30 series, with our um, R series sprayers, I really can't tell you right now. Um, I got to think that. Uh, that our R series sprayers will take a little bit of a hit in the uh, in the marketplace uh, because I think Hagee's will will, will do some uh, will have some cannibalistic uh, be kind of create a cannibalistic environment and kind of feed off some of those sprayer sales that would have been R series sprayers. But uh, <clears throat> with that being said, I, I really feel positive about where we're at with sprayers and where we're going with us. We put a lot of resources and a lot of time into understanding the Hagee, uh, the Hagee sprayer model, and and where and what its uh, what its um, benefits are for us here in in corn country in the heart of Illinois. Yeah, we uh we are dabbling in the Hagee market. I think we've got a one maybe that we've sold um, that that's coming in. But we're, we're, with us being a, such a, a a strong wheat market. Um, the Hagee does have a place for us because we do we do have a, f- a fair amount of, of corn and beans that we that we're going to sell and that that ultra high sprayer that that the Hagee makes it will have some benefits there um, 
And I think it gives us one more thing that we can go out and differentiate ourselves against our competition when we start looking at um, how that how that sprayer fits into the overall mix, especially with our CAD customers. You know, so mm-hmm. there's a there's a good a good opportunity for us there. All right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> last but not least, we've got uh, we've got some combine talk, and I, and I think we've we've kind of covered this pretty well already, but I feel like the combine market, I feel like to us is, is going to be still somewhat of a fickle market. I think there's guys because of what the trade difference is going to be compared to what they can just recondition their machine for. Um, I feel like there's going to be a, we're going to sell, we're going to sell more combines than we've had in the past, but I don't know that it's going to be an overwhelming amount of combines um, and, and do that. We are really trying to go after our, our current, used market we're really looking at leases as a good way to get that that payment in, into a good spot for these guys and really starting to hammer that operational cost per hour so I, I feel like our used marketplace there might be a little more opportunity there than our new marketplace but um we we need to sell some new combines too so what do, what are you seeing out your way yeah we had a we had a real good year with with new sales this year uh you know we we grew our sales new quite a bit, but we were so far down uh, the two years prior to that just for the fact we had so much inventory on the ground. You know, once again, you know, as you and I talk, we're washout cycle guys. We look at our washout cycle and we say, okay, how much can we, uh, how much new can we sell based on what our, where we're at used right now and compared to our sales history? And uh, this was the first year where, um, I walked into our, our sales or talked to with our sales managers and said, we need to sell new, new combines to, to create used demand because we don't have enough used to, 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 to cover our area right now. So we sold some more combines. We're pretty aggressive about it. We felt real good about it. Um, you know, where we're, where we're going, um, you know, I think that this year will be marginally better. Uh, and a lot of that's due to just as what you said earlier. Uh, you know, we talked about this that, that 13, 14, 15, or 13, 14 model years. There's just a lot of inventory out there. Um, that guy that's got the 2011, 2010 um, 70 series machine, he's not wanting to jump up. If he's going to make the jump and spend that much money, he's not wanting to make a jump to a 13 or a 14. He's wanting to make a jump to a 15 or a 16. Just like our guys who got 13 and 14 machines have, so we kind of got this buying gap there. We got to figure out how to get uh, to get our customers to want to buy retail buy 13 and 14 machines uh, because they if they're going to have an 11 and they're, you're telling them hey it's going to be this much to go to a, a 14 model year or it's going to be this much to go to a 16. A lot of a lot of cases they're saying hey I want to go to the 16. Well the thing is we just don't have a lot of 16 model year combines or 15 model year combines we didn't sell as much new as uh as we we wanted to that year because we had the glut of the 13 and 14 year combines so that's why i say i think the year's gonna be marginally better i you know i think as we work through those 13 and 14 model year machines and and sell more new it'll get uh, the market once again, it'll clean itself out, and, and we'll be in a lot better spot. Yep. No, I agree. I think there's, like I said, there's uh, there's some opportunities there, but, like, I don't know. I think we're the same way where we've got – we don't have the, the, the 16, the 15 model um, year combine trade-in. So, hopefully, that's why I was saying hopefully we can go out and sell a few um, new combines to generate those 
those 16s and 15s and, and, you know, 17s, you know, that we've got a couple customers that we still kind of, we still roll with and, um, hopefully we can bring those in and we can find some guys that want to buy them. Um, that being said, you still have to find someone that wants to buy a $300,000 used combine. And that, that's, uh, that just shows you without price of new equipment and, and how that affects the price used, you know, you got $450,000 new combine and you're going to 300,000 plus dollar used one. That's, uh, it's getting to be a, a, a challenge with, especially in the certain, in the situation that we're in right now with the economy, the way it's, there is a, a situational, uh, struggle with, with those, with that pricing of that equipment, but is what it is. And, and we got to fight through that. Uh, you're right. Now, you know, I, I can't say enough that, uh, you know, I think, I think Greg, uh, Greg Peterson hit it pretty well in his last, his last report to everybody. Um, you know, the lowest demand machine that's out there is the lowest quality machine. Right. The quality is not there from a marketing standpoint. The demand is not going to be there. If a guy goes out and, and jumps into a 300 and you're saying, hey, this is a $320,000 S670, I want you to buy it, and it doesn't look like a $320,000 combine, he's not going to buy it. I mean, once again, there's so much market transparency, you will find a machine that looks right. So, you know, um, you, you know, you've asked me before, what's the lowest demand product? Well, the lowest demand product out there is the lowest quality product. If you're not going to make that machine right to the price point it's at, you're just not going to sell it. Well, that was a great segue into the next topic here. Recon process. Um, when you, uh, that, that my, in my opinion, is, is the one thing that can wreck any used piece of equipment that you got. If you over-recondition or if you under-recondition or you don't have your ducks in a row when it comes to that, you can be upside down on a piece of equipment pretty quick. So with our recon process, basically how we do it is our salespeople go out, look at the piece of equipment, take the pictures, walk around it, give us a general description of what it is, put that information into a Machine Finder Pro. They send it over to me and I evaluate it based on what I see happen in the marketplace and, and what we have in inventory in our, in our general sales history of, of similar machines. And then we go, you know, we run through recon estimates that have to do with <coughs> the cell, the store managers are, are kind of heading that up with their shop uh, foremans and, and looking at what they're going to, what the reconditioning costs will be, and then making decisions on what's going to get done, what's not going to get done based on the um, kind of recon estimate we set up from the start. Um What's your, what's your, starting with the trade-in, what's your process look like? Yeah, you know, it's a very similar process, uh, you know, from that, from that respect. Our salesmen go out to take the pictures of it. They, they inspect the machine from a 30,000-foot view. Um, they don't, they don't take off shields, covers, get inside the machine and look, but they do inspect the machine. Um, uh, it's, Put everything in an evaluator and MF Pro and send it to myself and, and our regional sales managers. Um, from there, uh, I'm the guy that uh, that sets the value on what the asset's worth. I give my feedback to the sales manager. The sales manager um, is the person that, that is in that, in that supply chain that looks at it and says, okay, 
this is what the asset's worth, but how does that how does that fit into my market? And and we want our sales managers to have the the flexibility to uh, you know to to meet the needs uh, that in that market. I I try to look at it just from a raw asset. I don't want to know who who the customer was. Uh, I just want to see the asset and, and put a hard value on that. Um, so. Who sets the trade values ultimately for us as our, sale, as our sales managers and our salesmen, and uh, you know they're looking at the they're looking at how the, the customer fits into that chain and where they can go with it down the road, all that. Um, where I'm, I'm the person that's that's assessing risk and setting the hard asset of, of that machine. Um, you know how reconditioning fits in. Um, I spend a lot of time throughout the years of, of, of compiling. What average costs are per hour on on all model years of combines, all classes of combines, and we kind of have a rough figure of okay, it's going to be this much per uh, hour, this much per hundred hours to recondition a combine. I think someone I know in in the uh, Kansas area worked and helped me out with that idea. So uh, <laughs> smart, smart remarketing manager I talked to one time, but uh, but. Um, you know, we look at it that way and uh, and try to do some estimates. Now, that isn't always right. Um, we are looking at a re-marketing re, uh, and, and reconditioning process, continually trying to perfect it and uh, and make it right, um, Casey. Because you're you you're exactly right. That's that's the secret sauce. That's going to be our our uh, value proposition. At our level of uniqueness against our competition, which is all other dealers, so we're still working on that, and, and we spend a lot of time trying to get it right. Yeah, and that, that was the one time that we had a, we had a guy at one time, and, and back to your point earlier, our our uh, I do the same thing as you do. I kind of assess the marketplace. I assess what I feel like the um, based on the information I have, what I what I think the assets worth, and I push that out there, and ultimately our our store managers and our sales guys kind of can they can set that marketplace to where they where they want to set it at and and work from there rarely do they go do they do much i mean they complain about what i what i give them but they don't change it very often so um it's uh i got a good group of guys that i work with so they're they're pretty level-headed folks for the most part um when you when you look at how you're going to decide how much reconditioning a machine needs do you look at it from the age of the machine, or do you look at it from how much reconditioning cost it's going to need? Like those two, that seems like a big dichotomy. We have a lot of guys who, are, who will want to trade in a uh, A650 four-wheel-drive tractor, and they want to put brand-new tires on it and, and do a few things here and there, and they want to spend $25,000, $30,000 on this machine, which is primarily tires. Um well, the machine's not even worth that much. You know, it's 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 hardly worth twenty five or thirty thousand dollars as a book value goes. Um, when do you start looking at okay, this machine here for its age and the amount we want to recon, it's not worth that much, and we're going to look at it front. They're going to start pricing our wholesale pricing, auction pricing, and retail pricing. How how does that reconditioning play into that that scenario? Sure, you know we um, the big thing we look at right first things is. If the machine's power guardable, mm-hmm. if the machine's power guardable, we try to we try to recondition it to some level. Um, 
you know, beyond beyond being powerable if it's that that twenty year old tractor. Um, we really it's a case by case basis, and in myself and that regional sales manager uh, discuss what we want to do there from a standpoint. And we also let we also talk to the salesman too, and you know, I ask the salesman what he feels his uh, his opportunity to resell that in the marketplace is. You know, you get you get into a real a real spot here, you know. You can't you can't just draw a clear line and say this is what it's going to be because I've seen some really nice 1995 and 96 20 year old tractors 80 83 and 8400s that are definitely retail tractors that you need to go out there you need to recondition them and make it right maybe put tires on it because you can capture the market there um, but uh, so so it's really a case by case basis when it gets to the older machinery if it's if it's still under power guard we're telling our shops to 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 start our, re, our remarketing process that we have in place and uh, and start to and start to recon that machine and uh, and work through our process. So uh, we'll get to the older stuff, stuff that's not power guardable. Um, we try to sit down and uh, and discuss how we want to how we want to attack that. In in some cases, it's really tough with combines. Combines, you know, I think 2012s right now are still power guardable. Mm-hmm. After that. You know, 2011, um, 9770s is not a power guardable machine anymore. Um, that that adds some real challenges to the market because that's still a very retailable combine. It's a combine in some cases we're putting well over a hundred thousand dollars in too. I mean, and you have to sit back and say to yourself, okay, when I'm valuing this machine, remember we can't power guard this. Our, 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 there's some other factors you can get some extended warranty on, but from a John Deere back warranty we can't we can't we can't power guard it anymore how are we going to market this machine moving ahead you know with that being said um so it gets a little bit trickier with with combines because their power guard window goes out of sunsets so quick uh and and you might have a 2011 97 70 that might need twenty five thousand dollars of recons so that's where we really weigh in on our, our reconditioning, our marketing process we have in place to try to make sure that we're doing the, making the best decision for the dealership and to, to be able to retail that machine down the road. Yeah, that's that's how we look at it, too. Do you ever look at, like, uh, like for example, I use Dawson Tire quite a bit to uh, really, I like their, their used selection of tires they have, the takeoff tires they have. I feel like they have a pretty good selection and and. When I'm looking at, like you said, the 20 year old tractor, that's got uh, that's very retailable, and we've got a few of those that uh, you wonder how they if they've ever been outside as good as they look. Um, where well, I, I look at some 85 percent takeoffs and, and and put those on there instead of maybe going with the with the new set and, and really trying to control your cost there, but also trying to represent, you know, it's a used tractor and we got some we got a reasonable uh, amount of time left on those tires. You do you do similar stuff like that? Without a doubt, yes, we do. You know, we're looking at talking at Dawson right now about uh, we have a we have a tractor with uh, with some wrong size rubber on it, and uh, you know it has some hours on it. We talked with them, uh, you know, Casey, about hey, we need a solution for these for these uh, for this tractor that'll match the customer's demand, and uh, you know, same sort of thing. Got some takeoffs, eighty five, ninety percent. Put them on. They're going to they're going to work great. It's going to be a great solution for that tractor, and and represented a lot better on our marketplace. I mean, 
I, I think that they do a great job of, uh, of, of finding a niche in this market today. Yep. Do you ever you look at any um, other aftermarket warranty companies like like Machinery Scope, for example? Do you ever do you ever look at them as far as getting the stuff that John Deere won't cover? Um, we use them in our in our uh, reconditioning process and our kind of risk management process uh, w- with machines that that John Deere's PowerGuard won't cover. First, we always make sure that. We try to use power guard as much as we possibly can on the machines that are out there. But um, if I like the idea of the stuff that's outside of there or, or right on the cusp of, of kind of can you or can't you, um, that machinery scope to me seems like it fills a pretty good void for us. Yeah, I, you know, um, we don't right now. Um, I'm very aware of machinery scope. Um, I think that it has a has a place in our marketplace. We just don't use it right now. Um, I've I've heard their I've heard their presentations. Um, I think they offer real value, especially for what you're talking about the those things that uh, that just aren't covered by uh, by by uh, PowerGuard. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think yeah, I think those good. So, just a few. One more thing here, and this is the one thing that I I love to have this conversation about because everybody defines it different. You, the whole excellent, good, fair, poor breakdown. When I when I say something is excellent, that means of that product category. So let's say it's a one-year-old machine with, with 300 separator hours on it. That doesn't make it excellent. It makes it excellent because that's the best one of, of the group of machines that you have to pick from. Um, when you look through that, how, how big of a varying group, when you when your sales guys are out looking at that, because most of the time when I get something in, I get I get about three scenarios. It's the best one I've ever seen. It's the best one in the county. Or um, it's the nicest one that we've had in inventory for a really long time. So I, I've yet to look at a machine from the view of a sales guy where it was it was a pile of crap. I think maybe once <laughs> or twice maybe I've looked at that. But what what do you see when you when you look at that that, that breakout? Yeah, you know, we have over forty salesmen on staff here. And I think we have 40 different definitions of yep. excellent, good, fair, and poor. Yep. Um, you know, from a, from a salesman standpoint and, and understanding where they're coming from, and, you know, um, I do understand that they're trying to sell and, and they're selling, uh, they're selling helps their livelihood. So in, in a lot of cases, they're going to say, hey, this is the best one I've ever seen. That's where you and I have to rely on our process. And and knowing that hey you know if it's a if it's a four hundred separator hour S six seventy this is how much recons it's going to need whether it's the best one X salesman's ever seen um, or whether it's uh, it's it they say it's common you, you just really you really have to that's where that's why we have process is to is to take the the surprises out of it and the emotion out of the out of the deal. Um, I always say numbers don't lie. You know, data doesn't lie. And uh, if you if you can get enough data built up and have a idea of okay, you know, on average, you know, a four hundred hour uh, separate or four hundred engine hour S six seventy is going to take thirty eight hundred dollars worth of recons to make it right. And, you know, then then you're set. You you should feel very comfortable because on average that's right. Whether it's the best one or not, we but we both know that our shops look at things completely different than the way our salesmen do. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, <laughs> our job is to protect the investment of our owners and, uh, and to make sure that, you know, we're, we're looking at, uh, we're looking at reconditioning in a way that protects their investment. Yeah, that's that's the same. That's what we see too. I mean, our sales guys are like you said. It's it's always the old rose colored glass effect. You know, you've got it always looks better on the farm than it does when it gets in. And and that's uh, I love our sales guys, man. They make me some of the stuff they do makes me laugh. You know, and I and I enjoy work with every one of them. But we uh, when I'm looking at combines, you know, I kind of have a a little elementary formula that I put together where if it's thousand dollars per hundred separator hours for reconditioning so if it's got 500 mm-hmm. hours on it you're going to spend five thousand bucks which is not near enough anymore but um you start looking at 800 900 thousand hour machines um spending eight nine ten thousand bucks on a, on a combine it isn't that that far-fetched anymore no no it isn't you know from that standpoint i've been really working with our, our sales guys on this too i mean for you know i try to put myself in their shoes um I'm not visiting a customer. He's got a really common, you know, 2012 S670. I mean, we don't want to tell that customer, hey, this this machine's a piece of crap. You know, it, it it's bad. It's, it's worn out. You know, it's going to take, you know, $20,000 to fix it. Our sales guys don't want to do that. I wouldn't want to do that if I was in their shoes. So that's what we try to, we try to communicate this process to them and just tell the customer, hey, you know, we have a process in place. We look at uh, we look at what average reconditioning is per separator hour per engine hour, and uh, you know, on average, this is what your machine would take to fix. We're, we try to be very transparent with the customers, let them understand where we're coming from. We're not telling them their, their combine's a piece of crap or worn out or common. We're telling them that on average, this is what it takes to recondition it, and uh, and you know. It becomes part of the negotiation then. Yeah. And hopefully our salesmen are, are, are you know, I, I always say a salesman, you know, they need to be a professional negotiator. That's what their their profession is, is to negotiate the art of the deal. And uh, they need to be professional good negotiators and understand how to communicate that and how to then turn it around and tell that customer, you know, yeah, so so your your 2012 that's got 2,000 hours on it that we're saying needs fifteen or $16,000 of recons, um, and that's coming off their price. But then again, look at what you're buying. You're buying a 2015, and we looked at it the exact same way. And by looking at it that way, you're going to get a combine that's going to go to the field. It's going to be ready to. It's going to be ready to pick the corn day one. If something breaks, it's going to be covered. You know, and, and really try to turn that back around it from a negative to a positive. You know, and I understand our sales guys. They don't want to go out there and tell tell guys, you know, your your machine's rated poor. So try to build a process in there and and bring it into the deal to where they can they can turn that to a negative and feel very comfortable and confident when selling that. Yeah. One thing I look at in the reconditioning process that I, I think is is very important is what the current condition of the machine is and then how much it would cost to make it go from poor to to good. You know, what does that look like? Is that something that's there? And a lot of those machines, when they're that way, I, I really advocate for our, our, uh, our sales guys and, and our store managers and, and to work with the shops is to get that inspection done, maybe not do the, uh, 
all the things that need to be done to, you know, take care of the safety situations, take care of the, the service situations that are there, but really kind of let, let that be part of your negotiation with, when it comes to that recon of we're thinking it's going to need 20,000 bucks, you know, worth of stuff. We have $15,000 budgeted. We've done these things already, you know, to take care of that stuff. We still have X number of dollars left out there to, to uh, work with. And I feel like that sells more equipment than, then we're just going to go out and fix it all and then sit on a lot. And then you're kind of stuck with nothing there to really kind of work with. Yeah, absolutely. Look at the exact same way. When I talk about a remarketing process, we have, you know, our machinery that's, that we see fit is, is, uh, is inspected. We have a three, uh, we have a three tier, um, three tier quote, you know, Stuff that uh, that's that's fixed that you know whether it's maintenance, general maintenance and, and safety, um, things that need to be fixed that are, have failed, and uh, things that are worn that could be fixed, and uh, it's all laid out in a in a in a way that a customer can look at it and say, okay, here's what we've done so far. If you want this machine to be like new, this is what it would cost. This machine, everything that's failed has been fixed. You know, the service, the maintenance, the safety, it's all been fixed. Now, if you want it to be like new, this is what it would cost you, and it's all part of negotiation. Yeah. You know, <coughs> Every once in a while, I kind of get my, my dirty used car salesman trick out and say, you know, the only reason it quit running when we brought it in was because someone turned the key off. So that's uh, it. It would go out and do what you need to do now. If it had to go out and cut another hundred hundred acres, it'd do it just fine. And uh, yeah. I think when you when I talk to our, especially our, our service managers about that, and I say, "Hey, look, guys, man, it was running fine when it came in. You know, now for it to go back out and do the exact same job again, you're going to have to spend this amount of money. Let's be, you know, let's work with it. We had a we had an inspector that worked for us for a while uh, that worked just for the sales department and inspected combines, and we were kind of working on some other things. And and as the uh, as the economy began to contract, we actually moved to a different position uh, within the service department. And he's actually a, a service manager now for one of our locations. And that was a, that was a very good, we, I thought that was awesome. And actually our, our shops and our salespeople loved it too, because it was the same person consistently looking at the same things. And with his five, you know what it meant. His 10, you knew what it meant. His fix, you know what it meant. His 60% worn, you knew what that meant. And, and uh, it was working pretty good. And actually, our, our reconditioning costs were coming back into check. I mean, we were having some pretty good success and, and really controlling our costs and really kind of driving that. If it, it's going to run for a couple hundred hours is what we're looking for it to go out and do. And it, it, it was working great for us. And um, <clears throat> hopefully we can get back to that and, and, and we can bring that position back in. But I think there's a... Like I said, you know, I think reconditioning is something that you have to watch like a hawk, and it, it will get away from you if you're not careful. Yes, it will. So, well, John, we've been uh, been going for a while, and and I uh, I really appreciate your time. And um, like I said earlier in my first podcast, the point of this podcast is to get people on here that are going to teach me something. And if there's any one person I've learned a lot from, it's it's John Hawkins. So I. Uh, I appreciate your friendship and and uh, and uh, all the conversations we've had on the phone, man. So, hey, yeah. Casey, likewise from you. Uh, you know, I'll say the exact same thing. There's one person I've learned a lot from. It, it's been you as well. So I appreciate everything we've done. And uh, you know, it's all about uh, trying to understand our markets and and uh, 
and how it affects the, the macro. Because the macro ultimately affects the micro. That's right. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. So, well, before we close it down, close this episode down, do you have any, any final words you want to say about anything or, or and, uh, you know, moving into the, into the coming year? Hey, hey, you know what? I'll leave that to uh, the people to take from uh, from our meeting that we just had here, and uh, probably hopefully write down some notes and 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 get some good thoughts. And from there, uh, they hopefully uh, uh, can have a strong sales year if used equipment as well. Thanks, Casey and John. And as I said at the top of today's show, we've got even more used equipment remarketing resources that we're sending your way. In addition to this hosted podcast by Casey Seymour, we're also tapping into his expertise across all of our informational channels. In addition to this podcast that will be released every other Thursday, you'll also see an Ask the Expert feature on our website, where you can ask him your questions directly. Check it out at farm-equipment.com slash askthexpert. He'll also be making regular contributions to our eWatch e-newsletter and in print in our Farm Equipment magazine. Make sure your free subscriptions are up to date so you don't miss a thing. Thanks once again to Iron Solutions for sponsoring this series. Iron Solutions provides dealers like you with an array of lifecycle management services that drive sales and profits. The Iron Search and Iron Guide suite of solutions is all about managing each dealership more efficiently and profitably, while Iron Search allows you to directly showcase your used equipment online to a wider universe of buyers. Visit www.ironsolutions.com today. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest industry news by registering online to receive our free e-newsletters. Visit www.farm-equipment.com. For Casey John, as well as our entire staff here at Farm Equipment, I'm Kim Schmidt. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll tune in with us again in two weeks when Casey sits down with Butler Machinery.